Welcome everybody to this podcast on the subject of offboarding banking customers or private banking customers. And today we're going to have a look at what the rules are around that. How much notice do you need to give? What reasons do you need to give to those kinds of customers if you're going to close their account? There is no single rule or regulation that answers this, and there's quite a number of different considerations that need to be taken into account. So I'm joined today by a stellar cast. Uh, we've got Rob Allen from our disputes team, Ollie Irons and Andrew Williams from our regulatory team, Andrea Finn from our employment team, and Sherry Spinks from our financial crime team. Welcome, everybody. Rob, can I turn to you first, please? I think we often hear people talking about 30 days notice for closing bank accounts where does that 30 days come from that everyone talks about it it comes i think from the financial ombudsman or fos which says that in circumstances where at least personal bank accounts are closed um they expect uh banks to give customers a reasonable notice so they can make alternative arrangements and they say this is 30 days um often now with the seven day switching uh service that seems to be more than um sufficient uh, they do also note though that some customers such as business customers might need more than 30 days particularly if they've got overdrafts to sort out as well thanks rob and um ollie can i just turn to you quickly what about bank accounts that have got payment functionality are there additional rules that need to be thought about there yeah in a retail context um payment accounts under both payment services and payment account regulations require providers to give at least two months notice of changes including of termination although there are legitimate reasons for doing this immediately and without notice so for things like fraudulent or criminal use consistent breaches of the framework contract uh, and abuse of bank staff um, the corporate opt-out in the payment services regs uh, allows for a shorter notice period for corporate customers but as Rob's just mentioned, the FOS indicates that more than 30 days might actually be needed in these circumstances. Um, more generally as well, under BCOBS, uh, banks are required to provide customers with appropriate information about retail banking services in a, a clear uh, manner and in good time. And the FCA have referred to this in the past when talking about managing customer expectations on termination and closure of accounts. I think a lot of this really comes down to what is actually fair and reasonable, um, which obviously takes on a completely new dimension with the introduction of the consumer duty and how that will sort of play out. Thanks, Ollie. And just picking up on that word reasonable, I think the other phrase, that, as, as well as 30 days, we often hear this phrase reasonable notice. Um, Rob, I've got half an idea that might come from case law of some description i was just wondering if you might be able to fill us in on that yeah that's that's right alex um <clears throat> some rather ancient case law now but textbooks and banking practitioners uh, still cite these cases um and and the phrase reasonable notice first comes at least to some extent from an old 1921 case and followed up by a 23 case which also said that the period of notice must be long enough in the circumstances to enable the customer to make alternative banking arrangements so there's that reference to uh, the customer going to find somewhere else to bank again um, in, the, in that circumstance the court refused to grant the customer an injunction requiring the bank to continue to operate the account however Okay, so there is there is some case law, a bit some some older case law. I suppose the other question, if we're thinking about 
what you can do contractually. I mean, there's general contractual principles about when a contract might be considered void or, or frustrated. Is, is that potentially of any relevance to these kinds of banking terms? Theoretically, yes, but practically, probably not that often. Um, those principles won't these days be called upon that much. So it's, it's unlikely that a contract between a bank and its clients would be void for mistake for example, uh, given the requirements for banks to communicate clearly and the provision of banking terms and so on. Um, banking terms of business often contain force majeure clauses and termination for serious breach of the contract um, isn't just something that the general contractual law will permit, but very often is set out in banking terms of business themselves. So most of the time you will just go back to the, uh, the terms. OK, thanks very much, Rob. Um, I mean, just just going back to the sort of reasonable notice point, I think it's worth mentioning that um, there's also Schedule 2 of the Consumer Rights Act 2015. Paragraph 8 of that says that a term is likely to be unfair if it has the object or effect of enabling the service provider to terminate a, a contract without reasonable notice, except that there are serious grounds. So if you're dealing with a consumer, you do have to think about that. That is slightly qualified for financial services contracts and it doesn't apply to certain types of financial instrument transactions um, so it is definitely worth looking at schedule two of the cra quite carefully in these sorts of circumstances and i think it's also worth mentioning just picking up on consumer duty that that is obviously a very important consideration from the 31st of july going forwards for any retail customers for non-retail customers it's going to be normal uh, principle six, treating customers fairly considerations and, and bear in mind that from the regulators perspective, they are conscious of the fact that if you close an account, a banking account for a retail customer, in some circumstances, that can be a, a very, very significant, even life changing event for them. So it needs to be handled with care. And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is when it comes to uh, customers who are deceased, or customers who um, have become incapable of managing their own affairs anymore, you do need a proper process. There have been enforcement cases around uh, people who got that wrong. You do need a proper process around that. You can't just automatically close accounts. So much for the sort of pure regulatory side of things. Sherry, if I could turn to you now. Um, when accounts are closed, if I understand correctly, customers are often not told very much about why the account's being closed. And I guess what would be interesting to know is why that is. Is it is it related to financial crime considerations and, and what are the Treasury's current proposals? What effect are they likely to have on things? Yeah, it may well be because of financial crime regulation, Alex. Um, if an account has been closed because a bank has concerns that the account contains proceeds of crime, that will inevitably lead to a suspicious activity report being filed with the, the NCA, the National Crime Agency. And in a scenario like that, a bank is going to need to exercise caution in its communications with, with a customer. It's got to be really careful that it doesn't tip off a customer that an investigation <clears throat> is is or may be carried out by law enforcement in the future. So um, not providing a detailed explanation to a customer could um, lead to a customer, particularly a savvy customer, 
um, figuring out that the reason behind it is because of a proceeds of crime concern. Although Alex, having said that, actually not providing a detailed explanation won't necessarily lead to a tipping off offence un under the law. But I mean, it's going to depend on the particular circumstances in each case. And I think just just on the other point you <clears throat> you asked about there in relation to the extension of the 90 day notice period, I think that is going to make situations like that where a SAR has been filed really challenging for banks. They're going to have to tread that difficult line um, for a longer period of time. So I, so I do envisage that being quite, quite a difficult um, thing for banks to deal with. Um, another point, Alex, if I may, just before I hand back to you, um, Financial crime risks more generally could lead to an account being closed. Um, for example, banks are required to assess risks and to mitigate risks posed by higher risk customers. That's not necessarily going to, to mean that a, a relationship needs to be terminated. Um, and that's particularly true of relationships with politically exposed persons or, or PEPs which are potentially higher risk, depending on the profile of the particular PEP involved. But actually, the starting point isn't that it's not possible to have a relationship with a PEP, but banks are required to carry out enhanced due diligence measures on, on those relationships with PEPs. And just, Alex, as a, a final point, actually, an amendment was made very recently in um, to the Financial Services and Markets Act, which, which was adopted by Parliament um, a couple of weeks ago. And that amendment requires the Treasury to make changes to the money laundering regulations this year so that domestic or, or UK PEPs are treated as lower risk um, than overseas PEPs and for the related due diligence measures to reflect those lower risks involved with domestic PEPs. So I think that is going to, to, to make things easier um, for relationships with PEPs going forward. Brilliant. Thank, thanks very much, Sherry, for that. Andrew, I'd like to turn to you next, if I may. Um, there is or there can be, I suppose, reputational risk associated with either closing someone's account or in fact continuing to to operate the account. What what thoughts have you got on how you would expect financial institutions to handle that? Thanks, Alex. I think the challenge is that reputation risk, frankly, is hard. So unlike market or credit risk, it doesn't lend itself to precise measures. And as a result, it is necessarily subjective. But while the risks might be idiosyncratic, identifying and managing them has to be systematized. As long ago as 2009, the Basel Committee made it clear that banks should identify sources of reputational risk to which they're exposed. And ultimately now, these now get factored into their pillar two calculations. So it's not difficult to envisage a situation where a financial institution whose supervisors view it as carrying significant reputation risk may face a capital scaler to deal with that, with the corresponding impact on their profitability. You'd expect to see reputation risk form part of a bank's risk appetite statement, but that's also challenging. Nobody wants to say that they welcome reputational risk, 
But equally, drafting those sorts of statements means that you want to be careful in your language and you don't want to talk about things like zero tolerance of reputation risk, because frankly, that's just not true. There's always reputation risk in what banks do. So risk appetite statements tend to talk about things like weakening stakeholder confidence or undermining its objective or mission statements. One of the more interesting risk appetite statements I looked at recently is actually one from the Information Commissioner's Office. So they talk about having a cautious risk appetite, which is three on a one to five scale they define when it comes to their reputation. But they note that they are prepared to take a stance which might be opposed by some of their audience where they believe it's necessary to achieve their statutory objectives. I rather like that. It's a clear articulation of the fact that you can't please all of the people all of the time. One of the other challenges with reputational risk is that there is clearly risk to both action and inaction. So exiting a customer because they might be risky may reduce risk. But if the customer is noisy on the way out, then that can create the very sort of risk that the institutions tried to manage in the first place. We've seen that quite a bit in the US, where we've seen institutions taking a strong position on fossil fuels, for example, withdrawing from financing of mining, uh, mountaintop removal mining, only to face a backlash then from the states with large fossil fuel industries like Texas. As I said, it ain't easy. That's really helpful. Thanks, Andrew. Um, another thing that one has to be extremely mindful of is obviously the Equality Act. Andrea, could you talk us through some of the considerations there, please? Yeah, sure. Um, just as well as the other issues that we've been looking at, it's important to remember that debanking a customer can be an Equality Act discrimination issue and give rise to claims um, for discrimination um, based on breach of those provisions. So providers of services, including banks, are all subject to the Equality Act. And they mustn't discriminate against customers or potential customers because of a protected characteristic. So in the UK at the moment, we have nine protected characteristics, which are race, sex, disability, sexual orientation, age, religion or belief, marriage and civil partnership and gender reassignment. Um, this question of debanking because of a protected characteristic has come up periodically over the years. Um, it's come up quite a lot in relation to race more recently with regard to the Russian-Ukraine situation. Um, there have also been questions and um, some publicity around the protected characteristic of religion and belief. Um, religion and belief is pretty broadly characterised under the Equality Act. Um, it doesn't cover every belief that a person has. Um, for example, a Nazism or equivalent would not be protected. But um, if you are looking at debanking somebody because of a belief which is akin to religious belief um, or otherwise philosophical belief, then that might be protected. Um, the big picture point is that it's unlawful to bank debank somebody because of their religion or belief or race or sex, etc. And if that is your reason, then there effectively is no defence. Um, where it gets more nuanced and more sort of complicated is where the decisions are more indirect. So the decision that you take is related to, for example, negative publicity or something that they have done or not done. Um, you get into a question about whether the reason for your action is their race, sex, etc., or whether it is um, the something else. And if it's the something else, but it's related to their protected characteristic, then there may be scope to justify the decision that you've taken. 
Um, providers in that context, I think, particularly should be mindful of um, freedom of expression, freedom of belief um, rules um, in the UK. And I just say as an employment lawyer, there's a fair amount of case law in the context of employment, relatively little in the context of services, but it's all it's all helpful stuff in terms of understanding what the issues are. And one final point for me before handing back to you, Alex, is just to note that customers can bring DSAs, subject access requests, to get access to um, personal data that the bank holds about them. Um, and it's a pretty clear route for people to get information about themselves and find out about what's going on, if, as it were, under the under the lid. Um, those requests, if you if you receive them, need to be handled pretty carefully with regard to um, legal obligations. So, Alex, back to you. Thanks, Andrea. And I would suspect you probably want to get legal advice if you've um, if if you've been served with one of those. I mean, obviously, regulated firms have record keeping obligations that they have to comply with. But Andrew, just turning back to you very quickly in terms of that point about details, what does that imply for processes around um, documentation and records when people are recording why they've why they've debanked someone or closed someone's account? I think there's always a need for caution in written documentation that could be produced for any reason, be it a DSAR, be it in response to a regulatory request, litigation, etc. Even where such a document may attract privilege, it doesn't mean it's a license to be imprudent in one's language. So I think there is caution required to ensure that if a document does come into the public domain, it doesn't say anything that's embarrassing. That's not to say that debate at a board or a rep risk committee or somewhere like that shouldn't be robust, but how those discussions are recorded needs some careful thought. Thanks very much, Andrew. Finally, Rob, for the last word, if I can turn back to you, please. Given that we're talking about regulated institutions there's always the question of enforcement risk if people are, are thought to have got things wrong what what can you tell us about the risks that people have to be mindful of um well i think in terms of regulatory enforcement uh we've covered in the last few minutes all the possible areas where th that may come up and obviously an interesting contemporary one at the moment is uh, in re reference to the consumer duty um but um andrew just spoke about record keeping and there may be other elements as well all of which may ultimately uh, result in a finding of a breach of a principle um in terms of FOS, there are relatively few uh cases that give us much direction um i think that uh, a lot of the time um the fraud point is a bit of an elephant in the room which means there are subtexts to FOS decisions uh, as well as litigation that just um have to be inferred uh, and can't be explicitly set out however um while the FOS doesn't set precedent, it has been known to recommend banks pay customers compensation when they have been uh, debanked, uh, as the FOS sees it unfairly, in relation to disrupted trading and cash flow, plus um, redress for distress and inconvenience, um, and also provide writ written uh, statement for suppliers and creditors. Uh, I, I think also in terms of litigation, uh, to, to uh, bring that into enforcement, I think, um, as Andrew and Andrea have discussed, DSARs uh, often uh, preempt litigation, and I think uh, firms should, in current uh, climate, uh, 
be conscious and mindful of an increase in DSARs, particularly from wealth bank in customers. Um, and finally, uh, although I've experienced this in a non-retail context, it may very well apply in a retail context as, as well, where a, um, a client's uh, unbanked or off, uh, debanked or off-boarded a, a, a corporate client, um, it has often faced threats of injunctions uh, attempting to mandate the bank to execute certain transactions um, as well. Uh, those can be very expensive and difficult things to deal with, um, sometimes inevitable, but uh, just worth bearing in mind the, the, the kind of ultimate risk there. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much, Rob. Well, that's it from all of us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks very much to the panel for your time today. And um, obviously, if uh, you need any help with um, offboarding or deep questions, you know where to come. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.